Remain standing as we turn our attention to the 12th chapter of Matthew, beginning at verse 38 through verse 45, picking up right in the context and in the train and the momentum of where we left off last Lord's Day. So let's not forget what the Lord had just been speaking on and what He had been pointing to as we now come to this passage this morning. Now hear the Word of God. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seek after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through the dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then says he says, I will return to my house from which I came, and When he comes, he will find it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it be also with this wicked generation. Our God and Father, send your Holy Spirit upon this word that you have given to your people this morning. And illuminate the word not only to our minds, but to our hearts. To give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to receive it with understanding. That we would leave from here sober-minded, watchful, and prayerful, and worshipful, and thankful, doing your will. We pray if there's anyone here that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, truly know him, truly have given his life over to the Savior. We pray this day would be the day of thy salvation and great joy will come in the repentance and the turn. Pray if there's one here that has been dwelling in sin. Who's had a hard heart that is unrepentant. That you will use this message in a very powerful way. To bring the wayward sheep back to the fold in repentance and truth. If there's anyone here that is entertaining idols, that does work in them the works of the flesh where there is a root of bitterness or anger or bitterness or selfish greed, may today be the day of release and joy in the triumphant work and kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you, O King, 
and Lord of glory. And we thank You for the text before us and for the victory over the grave that You have given to Your people. And we pray this in Your name. Amen. You may be seated. As historians look back upon our generation, one of the characteristics they will not use to describe us is committed. Committed. Our generation is one that loves to keep their options open should something better come along. Making a commitment is something that is seen as oppressive because it destroys how we think about it, our personal freedom. However, making and keeping commitments is one of the best ways to strengthen our character, to build trust, and to influence our society around us. Making and keeping commitments is also a manner in which God sanctifies us. We come today in a covenant renewal service to renew our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, to make it new and fresh today, to follow Him as His disciples. Whatever it takes, whatever the cost, to deny ourselves and pick up our cross and to follow Jesus, that is what we do this day. We make a new commitment as He renews the gospel assurances and the hope And the blessings for such a commitment. So why is it that we have such a problem in being decisive and uncommitted in our lives in this generation? Why do we not respond well to RSVPs? Why does our generation have such a difficulty with church membership? Or other areas in life that require our time and energy that is somewhat governed by other things outside of ourselves. We are a generation that does not commit ourselves to the Bible, to the means of grace, to Sabbath keeping, or anything else that might get in the way of what we want to do. Perhaps we're too individualistic, too independent. Too autonomous and too self focused to really be all in for Jesus. Whatever the factors that are involved, and I'm sure there are many of which I cannot even comprehend, we are a generation that is indecisive and weak in character. And when I speak of our generation, I'm referring not merely to people in our own time, but I'm referring to a people also somewhat limited geographically. I'm particularly thinking of Americans. I can't really speak for a generation of people in another place or another land. Perhaps they're not as characteristic as ours here, but I can speak, I believe, for our generation. Well, the indecisiveness that we see in our own generation is not new. In the passage before us, we see four expressions that tie this passage together and form us what this passage is about. Let me point those four expressions out as we begin to see it unpack and 
veiled before us. First of all, in verse 39, we see an expression that the Holy Spirit uses here. An evil and an adulterous generation. In verse 41, he says, this generation. In verse 42, this generation. And in verse 45, this wicked generation. The four expressions that the Holy Spirit used that pulls this entire passage together and brings the true meaning and the, the, the message to God's people then as well as it is today is this evil and adulterous, wicked generation. There's something about that that Jesus wants to speak. What the Lord is doing is He is analyzing His own generation, the generation in which He ministered. And there have been many generations down through history that have had the same characteristics that Jesus is dealing with here. And I believe our generation is one of those and why this passage is so relevant to us today. In our Lord's ministry in the first century, in this particular generation of those gathered around Galilee and Palestine and His area, the nature of His ministry, though it was widely and broadly disseminated, was largely unproductive in His generation. And this morning, that is the message of this passage to us. The indecisiveness of an evil generation. Since that's where this passage is taking us, and that's what it's all about here. We're going to consider that topic, the indecisiveness of an evil generation. Now previously, our Lord was with some very hostile Jews, the Pharisees and the scribes, but hostile ones that were accusing Him of healing and casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. But now he's answering a a Jewish people, Pharisees and scribes, that are really more moderate in their spirit. We know that because the way they come and approach him in verse 38, they say, teacher. That was a very respectful term. They're coming to Jesus in in this sense where they are posturing themselves as being his learners. And while there was a smaller, more violent group of Pharisees and scribes that were calling out for his death and sought to do harm to him and accused him of blasphemies, there was really a larger group of Jews who were respectful, who came to Jesus and called him teacher. They weren't prepared to go to the extent as the more violent Jews and say that he had the power of the devil. But what we see here is a people that are posturing themselves as being indecisive about Jesus. 
They will go along with Jesus to some degree, especially as it pertains to bringing their sick to be healed, receiving other earthly and temporal benefits from the kingdom, yes. But they will not entirely commit themselves to Jesus in the work He calls them to. If you were to single one of these Jews out, you would probably acknowledge that they would probably acknowledge that Jesus was a notable teacher. And the things he did were, were really, they were beyond dispute. But they still would be doubtful and, and they needed a sign. They need more evidence. They need more proof. And surprisingly, those that are characterized this way, the Lord includes them as part of a description of this evil and wicked, adulterous generation. And even an adulterous generation doing what they are doing, they demand a sign beyond what has been obviously displayed right before him. And notice the way that these indecisive people, first of all, respond to the threat of judgment. Jesus had just spoken of judgment. We recall that in the previous text that we looked at last Lord's Day. And these are people who are respectful and they're prepared to say honorable things about Jesus, though they are not yet His disciples. But what they want is they want more proof. They want more evidence. Jesus, show us a sign. It's hard for us to believe in the light of all that Jesus had done so that the crowds and the multitudes would would marvel and say, We have never seen such a thing like this in all of Israel. And they would testify on the one hand that very fact, and on the other fact they would say, but you know, we need need a sign. And what they were looking for was a different class of miracle. They were looking for something a little different. Luke 11.16, a parallel passage to this, clarifies a bit more for us. It informs us that these Jews were looking for a sign from heaven. Now, the Jews throughout all of their history had been used to looking from signs from heaven. You know, Moses, John, John 6 is telling us, well, Moses gave us manna from heaven. Show us, Jesus, a sign from heaven. We saw up on Mount Carmel when Elijah was there, the fire came down and there was a sign from heaven. Jesus, if you're really in the sign, show us a sign from heaven. When the temple was dedicated, we saw the Shekinah glory of God and the fire and the cloud and the glory cloud comes and descends upon the temple. Show us a sign from heaven. When the first burnt offering sacrifices after the temple was constructed and the fires had to be lit, where was the fire going to come from? The fire came down from heaven. Jesus, we we need that kind of sign. They wanted something more than He was showing them and what He was doing. He was the sign. Now we hear the answer from Christ to those who had sufficient light. And our Lord's answer to these people 
who needed more proof, needed more evidence. He, he gives it in, in two parts. And the first part is in verse 39. He says, you know, there was not going to be any sign other than the sign of Jonah. Huh? People might say. For Jonah was three nights and three, three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish. So will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. That'll be your sign. That's the sign I'll show you. In the midst of all of the other signs that he was doing to, to verify his works, to verify his messianic office, to verify that he was sent from God, all of the miracles so that the crowds themselves, these people testified, we have not seen anything like this. He in the midst of all of this, says, I'm not going to show you a sign except for the sign of Jonah. The Son of Man was a title that Jesus used on this particular occasion, but the Son of Man was Jesus' favorite title for Himself. He used it over 80 times in His earthly ministry. It's a title that the prophet Daniel revealed to us, that the ancient of days would give to the Son of Man the kingdoms of the earth. And when Jesus comes, He calls Himself the Son of Man over 80 times trying to get it through that thick and dullard people that I am the Son of Man that the Ancient of Days is giving the earth and all the kingdoms here. The very title that He is using should reveal to them this is the sign from heaven. This is the one. He says, the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth like Jonah was in the belly of a fish. For three days and for three nights. Just three. Not four. Not two. Three. This does seem to be, ironically, a bit of revelation right here that his enemies seem to give some credence to because we know that after his crucifixion, they went to Pilate and they asked for a guard to be placed over the tomb until the third day. They weren't concerned about the fourth day, they were concerned about the third day. See how these people can even play with and interact intellectually with the revelation that Jesus gave, but not embrace it into their hard hearts. Not uncommon to our own generation. And the sign that the Son of Man gave to them in that generation is the same sign that Jesus gives to this generation. And that is the resurrection of Christ. That is the sign. That's what's going on here. It's the Holy Spirit that gives conviction to the risen Christ. It is the Holy Spirit that has been given to the church to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. It is the Holy Spirit that empowers the gospel to say yes and amen to the risen Christ.
That's the sign. It always has been. It always will be. Now, it's not enough to merely believe the sign. It's not enough to merely believe the resurrection of Jesus. There's a difference in believing the resurrection, the sign that he gives here, and putting your faith in Jesus himself. There's a difference in one's head knowledge of the facts and the total life trust in the person as Lord and Master. There's a difference there. And until you come to the place where you acknowledge the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to the extent that you turn from your sin and you repent, and you now take up your cross and you die to the old self and you follow Jesus as, his, as your true Lord and Master, that is the place of redemption. That is the place of salvation. That is the place of joy. That is the place of release. That is the place of victory. And when you give the gospel to people, you're doing it faithfully just simply by telling a sinner, look, you're a sinner before the face of God. And God will judge you for that, but He's provided a Savior in His Son. And let me tell you about Him. And you go to tell Him about Jesus, and you tell Him about the work He did for sinners and saving sinners, and you come to the resurrection Always come to the resurrection. Always speak of the resurrection because it's that which the Holy Spirit will either ignite and inflame to a new birth of that person or that He will leave him. But you come to the resurrection. You show Him the sign that Jesus says is the sign and let the Holy Spirit do the work in the life. But you must come to the resurrection. Folks, don't ever do your apologetics without referencing the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can give all the evidence for creation against the other people of the world and against the science and evolutionist and the, the secular humanist. We can give all the evidence and proof for the existence of God that we can possibly muster up. But the ultimate sign is the resurrection of Jesus Christ and apart from Him and the Spirit of God convicting that in the heart, there will be no salvation. Always do your apologetics in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Never leave that out. If you're going to stand for the defense of the gospel or the defense of creation or the defense of any truth of God, you make it clear that you're not just representing the truth of God, you are representing the truth of God as is defined in the resurrected Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And now you've clarified it. Many people can give credence to God. Many people do so in the media today. Many of our politicians speak of God, but rarely does one speak of the God of Jesus Christ and the living and resurrected Jesus Christ. That is the sign. And that is the power. If you find yourself straddling a fence between a total commitment on the one hand and a total rejection on the other of Jesus, and you're 
here and you just need a little more proof, a little more evidence just to push you over the edge. The proof is the resurrection of Christ. That's the sign he gave. People will sit in churches week after week with the evidence of the gospel and the resurrection of Christ all around them. There are churches today who may not be preaching the gospel truth from their pulpits, but whose liturgy is full of the gospel of the resurrected Jesus Christ. People will be coming to the communion table today, evidencing this sensible form of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. People will be experiencing non-bloody sacrament today and testimony and evidence of the sign of Jonah and the sign of Christ. And yet their hearts will be dull with all that evidence, with all that proof, with all of the sign before them. And week after week, they have this abundance before them. And the fearful thing is, how long will the Holy Spirit continue with them? There may be many today that are sitting in churches like that whose hearts are burning within them with conviction. And week after week, their hearts are burning and their conscience is smiting them with the truth. And yet they still remain uncommitted to Christ. And one day, and God only knows, when will they cross over the line for good? Where they will no longer feel the conviction And they will never fully committed come to Christ. Even though for a time they tasted of that heavenly gift. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for more proof. For more evidence. In of overwhelming evidence. Now, the second thing our Lord does in answering those who seek for this kind of sign is he recalls two generations that have gone before them of which these people would be well familiar with. The first one were the men or the generation of Nineveh. And the second one was the generation of the queen of Sheba. And when the fearful thing here is what the Lord does is He now projects into the future of that great and terrible day of judgment. And using these two generations of the past, in light of the current evil generation, speaking of that future event to come. Now that day of judgment is a day that We don't really like to think about very much. It becomes very disturbing to us when there's very vivid language that forces us to envision ourselves before the throne of God in a resurrected body and completely naked in our soul before God. And Jesus has been referring to this confrontation and pressing the matter of judgment on his hearers. That's what this whole passage is all about, including the preceding one. 
And this matter of our future judgment is a motivating influence in our lives to live soberly and watchfully and not presumptuously. And yet in faith, longing for that time to be rid of all of the things that encompass us and weigh us down. Longing for that purging and cleansing and for our completeness to be made as true humanity that God has designed us to be. And there is a time for us to press that future day of judgment upon unbelievers when we are telling them the gospel and they carelessly and apathetically, lethargically seem to be indifferent. And what our Lord wants His hearers to see here is that in that future judgment, there will be other human voices that will stand up and point their fingers at them. It would be an awful thing if you were in a courtroom and the judge sentenced you to death and the whole gallery erupted when they heard and they cheered at the thought of now them hearing the judge condemning you to be hanged. And that's what's going on here. Jesus said that Jonah's generation in Nineveh will rise up and they will confirm the validity and the justice of God and their condemnation of the Jews in Jesus' time who just remain indecisive. Respectful, hearing, acknowledging, but indecisive. I mean, those people of Nineveh were people that repented when Jonah came. When they heard the Word of God and God's Word of judgment upon them, they repented with gravity and permanence like no other generation that has ever been described in the Scriptures. When the king of Nineveh heard God's warning, he removed his royal robe, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he declared a decree for everyone in Nineveh to neither... Man nor beast to taste anything, to eat any food, to drink any water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. And turn from their evil way. Even for their livestock. They cause their livestock to fast. And the very things that their bodies needed, they forewent because they beat themselves on their chest and sought repentance. Yet they did not have the light that the people of Jesus' generation experienced. They did not have the light that we have experienced. And in the day of judgment, this generation of those in Nineveh will raise up their voices in the courtroom along with God and condemn those who are indecisive about Jesus. 
Second illustration was that which is taken from the Queen of Sheba. Queen of the South, as we know, as the Queen of Sheba, who rose up and she made a great sacrifice of her time and her energy, traveling from quite a long and arduous journey across a difficult terrain to sit at Solomon's feet and to hear what God had done. And people who will remain in indecision and those who are lethargic about Jesus, those who remain indifferent, will hear from this woman in that day. She's going to talk about how far she had to travel at the expense that it took, the great personal sacrifices that came to her to make this journey just to come here of God's blessings of Solomon and all the wisdom and wealth that God gave him. And yet how many people in this generation have how many copies of Bibles in their own homes? right underneath their noses and will not read it. How comfortable it is to even stroll down to the nearest church and hear the Word of God and see the wisdom of God and the crucified Christ and the resurrection and the power of the Holy Spirit. And we can't get ourselves out of bed to get the church to come and hear it. How many children only read their Bibles when their parents tell them to? And here we have a woman of royal nobility who made great sacrifices across a difficult terrain to hear the wisdom of God. And those who can just never quite make a commitment to be all in for Jesus will hear her voice in the day of judgment crying out with God condemning that generation. And this one. So little interest in the things of God. You can almost hear her saying, now, you know what? I didn't have, I didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I didn't have Romans. I just heard Solomon. And how many American churches this morning will hear her voice raised with the others in the day of judgment to speak out against them in vindication of Jesus? Because they just would not commit. They need to leave their options open. There might be some better things that come along. And they don't want to have to sacrifice their time, energy, money. Or a whole day out of their week. So far in this passage, Jesus has given us a confirmation of indecisive people where the resurrection will be the sign. The second thing he has done is he has warned of a coming condemnation that will not be merely of God's but will be enjoined by those who never had the light or the privilege like they do, or even we do today, or even had the possibilities that they had or we had. And yet they have shown more spiritual aggressiveness and more spiritual interest than those who have had the light of God shed on them constantly. And now he comes to a very fearful part of this passage, still talking about this generation. 
in verses 43 through 45. When we hear the fearful consequences, not merely for the future, but for the present. For the present. All of the return for indecision is not merely left for a future judgment alone, but happens even right now. And happens this way that Jesus described it. He describes an evil spirit who left a man. For whatever reason, we don't know, and that's not the point here. But an evil spirit leaves a man, and in the process, the, the man is able to clean himself up a little bit, and there's some reform that happens in the man, and the house is swept and cleaned up and put into order. But the demon comes back and he finds the place all cleaned up. So he goes and he finds seven other evil spirits more wicked than him. And they go and they make their new home in this somewhat reformed person. And there are people that undergo some change in their lives, but they will not go the entire route. They won't be an all in. And the Holy Spirit does not reside in their life. Because when the Holy Spirit does reside in their life, it changes them to be fully committed to Christ. There's a fearful possibility that one can fall under the powerful domain of darkness to a far worse degree than the first. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Of a wicked generation that can be respectful to Jesus, that can acknowledge some of those truths, but they need something greater. They're just not quite all there, and they don't necessarily have to wait for the future for great judgment to come. If you continue to question the Word of God, question Jesus, if you continue down that path, There's going to be a day coming when no one can satisfy you. You'll become more intellectually adept to questioning everything. And sometimes God just lets that sin deal with it. Deal with the person. The very thing that we say that we want, that which we hang on to, He often gives us in order to deal with us. I've often counseled people, be careful never to want something too much. Unless it's like more of the passion of God. Because God may just give you what you think that you want, and that might become your very judgment. There are many examples throughout all of Scripture that testify of this, even the children of Israel when they're out in the wilderness and they, oh, we wish that we would have the kind of delicacies and the meat. Moses, give us meat. Okay, God will give you meat. You just stuff yourself with it and the plague comes and it just kills you. Have all the meat you want because you've neglected the beauty of the heavenly manna and the angelic food that God has given you. And the scary thing is that people are capable of doing things 
they never imagined themselves capable of doing. There's a powerful force of darkness that is far more powerful than you think that can lead you to a far more than you would ever imagine yourself capable. There are examples of Christians where they go back into the bondage to such a degree that it almost seems reversible. And there is so much hurt and needless pain, so much confusion and anger and bitterness, like something else is controlling them past the point of helplessness. This morning I thought of two live examples in my life of this very thing. The first example was a man I knew right after I was married and we joined the church. Chesley and I sat about right back there unknowingly in a young married group of people. And right after the service, a young man comes up to us who was also newly married and he invited us and treated us warmly. And first invitation to his home, we were in his home the very next Friday for dinner. He was the leader of the young married Sunday school class. Married to a very fine young lady who was the daughter of the pastor of the church we were then visiting. This man had been, in his former days, a very vile, fornicating, godless man on drugs. But he had a radical reformation in his life. He went off to Bible school and came back and married the pastor's daughter. But before a consent was given, we recall in a time when Things were going really well. Now this is the, like the gem of the church. She was just a beautiful and in depth with character and meek and a boy. You better take care and provide. You better make sure. Marriage happened and years went by and kids were coming forth and appears as though Everything was going well. I remember going out on visitation with this man on a Tuesday night and visiting a home of someone that did not know Christ. And I heard this man giving the gospel witness to this unbeliever while I took care of the children and prayed quietly for God to break through over there. But this man, to our utter horror, went back to that old life. After a decade of being married and showing forth a sterling life on the outside, went back to drugs, went into adultery, which led to a divorce. And this precious godly woman with two children was now left in a very difficult place. And to my knowledge, that man did never repent and come back to the Lord. I pray he did, and I just didn't hear. Another example, a friend of mine, a fellow elder, got the call to the ministry and went off to seminary. Gave his life to full-time ministry. And a man that I had participated in his ordination as a minister of the gospel. 
A man who became embittered in life, angry and dissatisfied, left his congregation, left his post, left his ministry, left his eldership, left his home, left his wife and children, and completely ran away from God. There was a bitter divorce, and his wife remarried. But praise God. I recently heard of this man's repentance that was genuine and sincere, filled with brokenness, regret, and remorse, declaring the righteousness of God and the thankfulness for his mercy. And like a prodigal son, he came back to his senses and he came back to his heavenly father. And he's now going about doing everything he can to repair every broken relationship. Because God was not yet finished with them. And the Holy Spirit had convicted him of the power of the gospel. Is at work restoring this broken man? And the hope was never lost. Where that point is, only God knows. You never want to test God. You never want to go down that path because there is so much pain and so much heartache and so much uncertainty that you may end up one day going way too far and never, never have really ever had the Spirit of God in you. Good people, let us hear the Word of God today and be fully committed to Jesus. That is our security. That is our trust. That is our hope. That is the sign. And making a commitment to Jesus is your safety, it's your protection, it's for your sanctification and your progress. And while commitment may not be a part of this generation's language, may it be a part of your life. And be a person who commits and by the grace of God follows through that commitment for Jesus that you make. There will be tests that come up for the word's sake and for the ministry's sake. And you must be committed. And by the grace of God you will be. Jesus is stronger than he that is in the world. He will not let you to be tempted above that which you are able. Jesus is stronger than that power that can overcome. Because if you count upon Jesus, he is your Savior and your Redeemer. He is your Lord. And with him, there is nothing that can happen to you. No one can take away his salvation. Everything that he has. But you look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith, and he will save you to the uttermost. But do not presume Upon him. Trust him. And all will be well. He wants your joy full. And he wants your joy full today. Because all of the other things. Apart from a full commitment to Jesus. Are filled with. Bitterness and anger. And with hopelessness and despair. But do everything. That you know to give your life unreservedly to the Savior for whatever He has for you. You walk by faith today and not by sight. And all you need to worry about is this day, right now, your life with Jesus. Jesus is here to save you. He's here to help you. Cry out to Him. Come to Him this joyful festival day. And come around this feast to eat of Him fully. And completely rest your cares upon Him. For He cares for you and desires to relieve you from all your distress and burdens of life that this world brings. And give you a taste of the glory to come.
our gracious Father, we pray that you would use this message to to heighten our awareness of the glory of Jesus and His saving power. That we would not be lethargic with Him. We would not be careless with Him. We would not seek for another day or another sign to give ourselves to follow Him. And we pray for our children that You would bless them with Thy great salvation and the joy and a renewed spirit within them this day. And we pray for Your blessing around the table as we come in faith, understanding that it is of grace and of Christ alone that does save us. So may our faith be solely and completely in Jesus. Lord, our faith is often weak. Lord, we're not judging our wealth and prosperity and our justification based upon how much faith we have. We only rely in Jesus and even in a small part is that which gives us that value. We thank You for the gift of life. The gift of Jesus. The gift of eternal life and the hope of glory which is in us. And we pray for great confidence as we come around this table today to shore us up with the truth. And open our mouths boldly to speak of the resurrected Christ. And use us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.